Hey guys, this is Robert Breedlove from the What Is Money Show. And as you've learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to facilitate financial security for all. They accomplish this by bringing a high level of professionalization and sophistication to the Bitcoin marketplace. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. By using Nidig, you will gain access to an end-to-end institutional-grade platform, providing Bitcoin OTC transactions, Bitcoin collateralized borrowing, secure custody, asset management, derivatives, financing, market research, and more. And all of these services meet the highest regulatory, governance, and audit standards. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and is leading the way for ongoing institutional adoption in this nascent asset class. So please be sure to check out Nidig as a single source for all your Bitcoin needs. So we're talking about fiat currency and the printing press and you know, money is money being a technology. So money changes over time based on the technological realities of society. Clearly, Bitcoin has ushered in a brand new reality of sorts. So maybe we could explore that, the differences in Bitcoin and everything else. What really excites me about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and the way that they differ from pretty much any money in history, not from any money history, but so many monies in history, is that they are not issued. It's the first money that isn't issued by the rulers. Mm -hmm. Now, it might be that the people who own Bitcoin end up becoming the rulers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not, you know, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto with his uh, million coins or whatever it is. But mm -hmm. the, the, like, you know, we had Alexander the Great issued his gold, the Roman leaders issued their gold, the British government issued its gold, the king, whoever it is, issued his gold. Uh, America issued its dollar, the British, you know, the money is always issued by the government, the king, the emperor, whoever the ruler is. And Bitcoin is not issued by rulers, mm. nor, is, nor are most cryptocurrencies. And, and governments are going to copy that because, as we can talk about this in a second, they're issuing their own central bank digital currencies, and the implications of that are, are, are pretty grim. <laughs> but the... What is exceptional about Bitcoin? So I think there, there have been times in history where lords and barons have issued their own money. So they weren't necessarily the king, but, you know, they, they were still issuing money and had stamp and all the rest of it. But they were still lords and barons. Whereas Bitcoin is the, is the one and it's, and it's voluntary. It's not imposed. I suppose historically many current, currencies were, were, I mean, everyone knew that gold was money whether it yeah. had whichever king's head it had on it, and you were still mm -hmm. money, silver, copper, metal. But 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 so that's that's sort of unique about Bitcoin that it that it is not issued by rulers. And and it's quite extraordinary in that regard. Yeah, it's 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 beautiful. Um there's a common saying in Bitcoin that we need money governed by rules instead of rulers. 
And that's what Bitcoin represents. It's just this unbreakable set of rules, frankly, yeah. in, in the sphere of money. And it, to your point, even if Bitcoiners or whoever else became the new the rulers, they would still be better than the current uh, power centers we have today because the current power centers twist the rules to favor themselves. That's what inflation is, right? They're breaking the rules of money to favor themselves. On a Bitcoin standard, the rulers could not do that. So the rulers would be limited in their power. They, they would be limited in their power. Um, and I love that quote about money with rules. Mm -hmm. What would yeah. you tell me the quote again? Uh, Bitcoin is money governed by rules instead of rulers. Yeah, it's lovely. And I, I was like the calling it apolitical money mm -hmm. or apolitical Agreed. money. Yes. So that sort of winds people up who, who are um, ideologically opposed to Bitcoin. What, yeah. What's there to be wound up by? It's, it's apolitical. And when you have apolitical right. money, in theory, it's the end of politics, likely. I mean, not, not politics in general. People will always politic amongst themselves, but it's the end of politics being the ruling force of humanity. Like right now, we have a couple of guys squabbling through different governance mechanisms, and they get to decide how to impose the rules on the rest of us. That would go away on a Bitcoin standard. It would. I will say this, though, Robert, and forgive me for saying this, but... There are a lot of people who got very lucky with Bitcoin. Of course. They happened to own some and they didn't, some, some were geniuses because they, they knew it was going somewhere and they didn't sell it. Mm -hmm. But there are other people who just got lucky. They owned some, they didn't sell it because they lost their wallet or whatever, you know, or they, they were, you know, right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. There are, um, and, you know, they're in the right place at the beginning of the most extraordinary bull market in history. You know, some people, we, we were lucky just to be alive when this, you know, when it happened. But there are some people who have made a lot of money from Bitcoin who are assholes. They really are. Yeah. And, and in fact, the money that they've made from Bitcoin Amplified. has turned them into assholes because <laughs> yeah. they've got arrogant and they think they're better than they are. Yeah. And, you know, what, one of the things you notice about really great people is they recognize their luck. And... And I'm not, I, mean, I think most Bitcoiners must recognize some of the luck. You know, they were riding on the, on the waves of something much bigger. And so the idea of some of these assholes had huge amounts of power in their own country, you know, they might become despots. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't be able to fuck around with the money supply, but they could yeah. fuck around in other ways. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah, it's, it's a distinct possibility. I guess I hold out optimism that, I'm a big believer in time preference. So I think the, the lower our time preference, which is to say the longer term thinking we are, the more moral behavior we tend to adopt. And I think sound money, we talked about this previously, sound money impinges on that heavily. It's the, the monetary yeah. standard closely related to the moral standard. So my hope, maybe it's naive optimism, is that even on a fully Bitcoin standardized world, the rulers would be much more moral and much less powerful overall, because again, they can't twist the rules. So mm. I'm not saying it would be perfect. I don't have a utopian vision, but it would certainly be better than what we have today. I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, and and I think people who think longer term, you you you, it, it, it informs the way you make decisions, mm -hmm. and it's the decisions you make often that determine how good or bad a person you are. So yeah. th there's no doubt that the moral fabric of a society built on sound money is better 
mm-hmm. than the moral fabric of a society built on fear. Yes, agreed. You know, I, I've been to countries where, you know, I was in Cuba. I remember 1993, 94, I was in Cuba, uh, you know, just like one year after the boat people. And it wasn't quite Castro at his most fanatical, but it was, you know, it was pretty heavy duty. And those people were messed up mm. because it was such a tyrannical and everyone, everywhere you go, everyone's just lying all the time because mm-hmm. it's mainly because they don't want to get mm-hmm. in trouble. And right. I remember being in Morocco, of all places, Morocco in 1990, which was quite different to the Morocco now. But again, that the Islamic ruling power in Morocco at that time, it was it was very it it. It was another form of quite, maybe not quite tyranny, but it was another very strong ruling power that, that if you stepped outside of the rules of that ruling power, you got in big trouble. And there was a lot of corruption there. And the people were, again, fanatical. And they always used to lie. And like Morocco was probably one of the least promiscuous countries I've ever been to. And Cuba was probably the most promiscuous country mm-hmm. I've ever seen ever then. I mean, it was just unbelievable. Everyone wanted to, their daughter to become a hooker because they got uh, more money as a hooker in one night off a tourist than, you know, some brilliant engineer earned in a whole year. It was just the Crazy. most distorted society ever. Yeah. But the the, but there was the same fanaticism among its people and, 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 uh, of just, and the, the, the Cuban money system was insane. Oh my God. It was so dishonest that the, the, the nominally one Cuban peso equaled one us dollar. Okay. Mm-hmm. Nominally. And I was a pretty, I was really into backpacking in those days and I really tried to get off the beaten track. And I really, I was in love with South America, Latin America, the music and everything. I really wanted to get off the beaten track and discover Cuba. And I was this real sort of, you know, slightly left-wing student had deluded ideas about the possibilities of communism back in those days. And Christ going to Cuba was a wake up call. Mm. And, and people would like Cuban people, would they'd come up to you and they'd kind of be going, Oh, Castro, he's amazing. He's amazing. And then they'd creep up to you and make sure no one was listening. And they'd go, I hate Castro. <laughs> and then they'd <laughs> and, and it was amazing. just, and, yeah. And so the, the money was one peso to one dollar on the official market. Uh-huh. But in the, on the exchange, on, on the black market, it was 20 pesos to one dollar. I'm going to have, it's so long ago since I remember these figures, I've got to get them uh-huh. right. You could not buy anything with pesos. There was just a few ration goods that you could buy, like bits of uh, dough, pizza, and ice cream, and stupid things like that. You could not buy, like if you wanted a pair of jeans, the only place you could buy a pair of jeans was in the government-run dollar supermarket. The government-run supermarket would only accept US dollars, even though it was the Cuban government that was officially at war with America. (laughs) Wow. And and like, if you want, like, I remember we went to this bar and we bought these um, cans of beer, cans of Cuban beer. And like, you know, they were just in shitty cans and you'd put one down. You'd like have a swig and drink half your can of beer or whatever. And you put it down on the table and you'd be talking to someone. You turn around and somebody would have nicked your beer. And it was so like, who would steal like a half drunk (laughs) can of beer with all my saliva and everything. But that's just how, poor the place was and so theft was everywhere but if you ever like caught the person stealing there'd be denial and lies and and it was just nuts wow and you had the situation where you'd like have a top engineer 
who would earn, um, I think it was 300 pesos. It, anyway, the, the, the basic situation without me breaking down the numbers is that an uneducated girl of 18 or 19 years old could go and sleep with a tourist or a taxi driver. Everyone wanted to be taxi drivers or hookers because that was the only way you got in touch with tourists. The only way you could get US dollars was by getting hold of tourists. Mm -hmm. And that was the only way you could get basic shit mm -hmm. uh, was to get US dollars. So, like, and, and so you'd have like, you know, the most brilliant musical composer of classical music or the most fantastic doctor or the most in fact, in fantastic engineer. And the, you know, who'd spent 20 years honing their craft to be brilliant in whatever it is they did. And the, and the, the hooker would earn more in one night just by banging some Italian tourist than, than, uh, than the, and, and I say Italian specifically for some bizarre reason, Italy was obsessed with Cuba in that time. So it's just full of these like really handsome Italian young men all dressed up in their Italian garb, dating these mm -hmm. Cuban girls. It was, I, it was just one of the most mental distorted messed up societies I've ever seen. And, and it was from this overbearing tyrannical regime, uh, that where the money was fake. Right. No, that's a great anecdote really. And, and the money is I often say it's like an extension of our mind. So if we corrupt really the money, you're corrupting the incentives effectively that that dictate how you act in the world and you end up with perverse consequences like that. Um, and I think there's another example there too, where you're talking about earlier, the Bitcoiners that maybe um, a lot of Bitcoiners got lucky, let's say, and the role yeah. of luck and timing in life, there's an old saying that I'd rather be lucky than good any day. I mean, luck is, it's a huge factor in and kind of how we yeah. succeed or fail in the world. I mean, you and I are lucky being born when we are and where we are. Oh, of course. Yeah. We're born at the luckiest time to exist ever in human history, basically, right? It's the, the highest mm -hmm. um, aggregate wealth there's ever been. And, you know, technology is changing our lives in a lot of ways, I guess, for good and bad. But um, overall, it's a net benefit. And I, I like the, there's an analogy there that money, those that get lucky, that get wealthy, Money can be like alcohol, actually, and that it sort of amplifies, it lowers your inhibitions in a way and can amplify your tendencies to be maybe just a little more careless or reckless. Um, mm. So you have to be careful with it. You know, it's, it's, the, Taleb says this too in his books, which again, I know he's not popular, but I still like his writings. He's great. He's great. Yeah. He's a great author. <laughs> let's, um, let's, let's judge him on his books rather than his Twitter feed. That's right. I try to separate <laughs> the idea from the individual and he's got, he's got great ideas that human beings have a harder time dealing with opulence and decadence and wealth than we do depravity. Like we actually, when we're, when we don't have as many options, we tend to work really hard and kind of, you know, adapt and figure, our, uh, we get really competent at figuring things out, but when everything's easy and we've got a lot of wealth and, there's, you know, we're just living in the lap of luxury that we're much more likely to kind of self annihilate in one way or another, um, either with alcohol or drugs or laziness, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Um, and the other point you made with the Cuban, thing I like his, I like Taleb's thing of fuck you money. Uh, absolutely. I love it. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not quite sure how much money is fuck you money. And I guess that some varies 
from whichever in whichever country you're in. It also I depends reckon, on the type of money too. I think. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, but let's just assume the measure is is U.S. dollars, and I like how much is is so much money that you can just go fuck you. I don't care. And I think in a way it's really good for people to have that level of money because it almost breeds a certain kind of honesty. Yes. Um, uh, because it, it enables people to go, I don't actually, I don't have to pander to you. I don't have to swallow my tongue. I can right. say what I think and a certain sum. So I, I don't know, $5 million, $10 million. How much is fuck you money? I guess it varies. It depends <laughs> on who you are and where you are in the world, because, you know, $10 million might enable to me to go fuck you to a load of comedians or something who I never really liked, but it, I, $10 million isn't enough to start going fuck you to, you know, Michael Saylor or someone who's worth several yeah. billion. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, it, it's a, a sliding scale, but the, it's, it's there's uh, a, a, a product of who you're talking to and it's also a product of when you say it because i'd say fuck you money yeah. is a lot more in 2021 than it was even in 2020. um it and also it's again i think bitcoin i think most people's portfolios bitcoin or not have, anyone with capital has done extraordinarily well in covid if you didn't have any capital at all all you had is your labor it's fucked you yeah but but anyone with capital who's got it in the stock market or in bitcoin or got whatever where real estate you know, most people have probably doubled their wealth in, in, in nominal US dollar terms yeah. in, in 2020. Yeah. And I was, I was just going to add that I think the, the character of the money you're using as well adds to that fuck you quality because and I've argued this before that Bitcoin is the ultimate fuck you money and that it allows you to say fuck you to every policy, po police, state, and politician in the world. I mean, no one has any power over you if you're managing your Bitcoin correctly. Um, and that's it's really, a fantastic, really powerful. Yeah, it is powerful. There's a fantastic Jordan Peterson little rant when he was talking to, he was talking on Fox News and it's doing the rounds on the internet at the moment. Oh, I saw this, yeah. Yeah, and he talks about, he made a conscious decision when he was 25 or whenever it was to speak the truth as mm -hmm. he saw it. I mean, yeah. truth, and again, we're back to this beauty and truth and all this, mm -hmm. but he said, it's so important that you speak the truth and you mustn't be scared of speaking the truth because whatever reality you create for you as a result of speaking the truth is going to be better than any other reality because um, you're speaking the truth. Mm -hmm. It's So it won't be built on lies. It will be, be built on truth, even if it's your truth. Now, there's a sort of, you've got to be a little bit careful of speaking the truth because, you know, you, otherwise you turn into Basil Fawlty or someone like that who's incapable of... of you know, there's this crossover between speaking the truth and being rude and being tactful and all these things, but there is still a, a truth. Uh, uh, there is still something to that. And fuck you, having fuck you money enables you to speak That's the right. truth. Absolutely. Um, but you've got to earn it. You've got to have earned it. You can't be born with it. It's not the same. 100%. And he makes the great point too that, say, like the end of Soviet Russia, I think one in three citizens were informants of the state. So almost everyone, again, in this totalitarian regime where it assumes that the, the state plan is the utopian model, it needs no new knowledge, basically, which, which points to a quote that I think is amazing, uh, I think uh, from Milton in Paradise Lost, he said, evil is the force which believes its knowledge is complete. And a totalitarian regime, by definition, yeah. believes its knowledge is total. That's what it is. Mm. Like, this is the plan. We're all going to stick to it. And what you it get that with the authoritarian to, left wing. They just think they're right. They're just 100% convinced they're right. There's no alternative exactly. but, their, but their view. Yeah. And what it leads to is 
everyone's a liar. <laughs> Everyone becomes a liar. You're either trying to escape, you know, lie to the state to escape taxation or whatever form of oppression they're putting on you, or you're an informant for the state. So you're lying to the liars, trying to catch them and report them to the state. And that's what just rips society apart. Mm. Again, all of it rooted in the money. Let me tell you something that really concerns me. Um, so I've got this, there's, there's sort of two, two prongs to this, but I'll start with the, the bigger thing. But I know when I talk about the bigger thing, it was going to lead us somewhere else, but it doesn't matter. So the, the idea is, is that if you look at the combined market cap, of the four or five biggest tech companies in the world. So the combined market cap of, of Google, Amazon, Microsoft, and Apple, say, or Facebook, whatever. The combined market cap of those four or five countries is bigger than the GDP of every country in the world except China and the USA. Mm -hmm. Those tech companies are tremendously powerful. Mm -hmm. And I've got this idea that you know, they're more powerful than most nation states. And at the moment, there's this sort of unholy alliance between large tech and, 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 and government because it suits the both of them. But I've got this new idea that the rules of, but already, for example, Twitter, forget what the rules of free speech are in any given country. Twitter decides what is free speech and what isn't. Yeah. And, and Facebook does. The rules are governed by the laws of the platform. Mm -hmm. And as these countries get more and more power, as these companies get more and more powerful, which they will, and if it, if it, it might not be Microsoft and Apple, it might be whatever the challenge is that comes along and replaces them. But as they get more powerful, they are going to set the rules. The, they are going to make the laws. Mm. And, you know, so for example, uh, I, I think the morals of driverless cars are very interesting when we talk about this. When you're in a driverless car, and I, I, let's make the assumption that driverless cars are coming. I, I think they are. Would, would you Would you agree with that? Of course. There's so okay. much utility I, 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 value okay. there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But it will no longer, you will no longer be allowed to speed because the driverless car will determine the speed that you can go at. So you won't be able to break the law. Mm. And the, you know, when you're in a, in a situation where you crash, um, you know, whether you run over the kid or the old lady, you know, you would have made that split second decision when you were in the crash in real time. That decision is now embedded in the code. It's no longer your decision to make. Mm -hmm. And, you know, let's say, uh, or let's say you go on the, the, the driverless bus and you, you won't be able to bunk fares because you'll have your little chip in your thing. So you just won't be able to break the law mm -hmm. uh, because, and, and, it, and if you do, you know, the, the platform and the laws will be set by the platforms, the rules. So that's quite an um, interesting new governance that we're going into. And I think we're, we're already on our way. We're not at the destination yet, but the, the journey is underway to that destination. Agreed. Now, yesterday, I'm sure you've had a million examples of this. Yesterday, I was recording a, a podcast with a guy really interesting young man who set up a business um, helping uh, people who've lost limbs. Either they've been born without a limb or they've been involved in a crash or an explosion or something and they've lost a limb. And he makes prosthetic limbs for him. And he was talking about um, what inspired him in the first place. And by the way, 
the, the prosthetic limb industry is an almighty racket I discovered that's been controlled by two companies for about a hundred years wow. and hasn't been challenged. And because there's so few, what was the word he called them? Um, people with limb differences. That was the term because not all people with limb differences are amputees. So he uses mm. word limb differences and, and they're just, it's like, half of one half a percent of the global population it's tiny mm. um and you know he's making these prosthetic arms for like 800 dollars that are currently costing 25 grand <laughs> wow. and it's really interesting that anyway but i was talking about what inspired him to do this in the first place and he said he used to watch the iron man movies he was he's only like 25 this guy and he said he used to watch the iron man movies when he was a kid and so we started talking about iron man in this podcast and my phone was on airplane mode okay um, and, and I was saying, well, I used to read the comics, but I, I was, I liked the comics more than the movies. You used to, used to read the comics. He was going, no, I only watch the movies. Anyway, I get home that night and I, I'm just surfing the net, reading articles, doing whatever I'm doing. And then suddenly my computer, not my phone, my computer is flashing up, uh, adverts to buy Iron Man products at me. Wow. Like, and I have not, the, the word Iron Man has not passed my lips in three years. Okay. And that was the first time in three years. And within an hour, the computer, the, 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 you know, something on my phone has told something on my computer and Google's whoever it is, is flashing Iron Man ads at me. So our phones are listening. They are listening. Wow. And I've had so many examples of this. There was one last year, I was going to go skiing and I was talking to my daughter on the landing. And I was saying, should I bring my Timberlands or my hiking boots? And my daughter goes, bring your Timberlands. And then I said, oh, but well, they're a bit worn out. Then I get into bed and I'm playing on my phone and Amazon's starting selling Timberland boots at me. Wow. <laughs> even on airplane uh, mode, still listening. Yeah, that's the thing, even wow. on airplane mode. And, you know, loads of people have got Alexas, but everyone's got a phone. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, you can say, oh, don't get an Alexa. And for sure your Alexa's listening. I can even see it listening because it, it's lights going on and <laughs> off. But, the, but, the, but even your phone is listening. Now, it's sort of fairly harmless if it's only using that information to sell you shit. And in fact, a lot of the time, as a result of, you know, I might have actually wanted to buy that Iron Man thing. A lot mm. of the time, the prompts you get are actually quite useful. Right. Uh, they really are. And, 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 and I, I discovered um, Game of Thrones, the books. I love fantasy. And I discovered Game of Thrones, the books because of Amazon prompting. So I'm actually quite grateful to mm -hmm. Amazon prompting me because it, those books have given me a lot of pleasure. And then, and since the film, uh, the TV series has as well, but the, at what point does, uh, we don't know who's gathering that information, what mm -hmm. purposes they use being using it for, how it's being sold on. And by the way, the idea of data, like your data is yours data as a value people are talking about it being the new real estate but mm. data as a value as a market didn't even exist until i don't know 1995 yeah you know until whoever it, it's just a, a whole new market a whole new product mm. um but so who's using that information what are they using it for and at what point in a in the wrong sort of world let's say i'm does that information get used for nefarious purposes so let's say i say I fucking hate Boris Johnson or I uh, can't stand Joe Biden. And what point, or, 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 or you some, say something else heretical in some way, at what point does that, at what point does the society we're in start 
you know, your phone collects information in the same way that the Russian informants you were talking about at the beginning right, of, right, of this conversation right. start doing it. Mm. So that is a big concern. And on the one hand, you know, tech is liberating us, yeah. you know, and then on the other hand, there's some, there's some bad shit going on behind the headlines. And, and like in, at the turn of the 90, at the turn of the 20th century, I use taxation. We, I'm here to talk about my book about taxation. We've barely talked about tax at all. Doesn't matter. The, at the turn of the 20th century, um, there's a wonderful quote by AJP Taylor where he says that an Englishman could go through his life in 1914 at the beginning of the First World War and barely notice the existence of the state bar the postman and the policeman. Who, with whom he came into occasional contact every now and then. You didn't need a passport. You didn't need ID. You could travel mm -hmm. the world without a passport. Anyone could come to the UK without a passport. And taxes were only about 10% of GDP. Mm -hmm. Now, and, and I think in America, it was, even, it was more like 8%. And so from the point of view of economic freedom, and you can't have freedom without economic freedom, as Thatcher said, we were incredibly free then. 90% of our labor was ours to keep. 90% of whatever our productivity was ours to keep. Now it's more like 40 or 50% is taken yeah. from us. Roughly half of everything you ever earn in your life will be taken from you from your government. And people say a house is the most expensive purchase you ever make. It isn't. It's your government. Mm. And so in that respect, we're a lot less free than we've ever been. Uh, or, you know, compared to what we were 110 years ago. But now... We can fly anywhere in the world. We can drive anywhere in a car. We can speak to anyone in the world. We can get access to unlimited information. You know, all the amazing things that technology has brought us. So in that sense, we are empowered. So we're more free than we've ever been. So it's, it's the argument that a lot of people use that, oh, it's not like the old days. Well, in many ways, it's actually better than the old days, mm -hmm. even though less of your earnings are yours to keep. Yeah, if we could just get the government out of our pockets, then we would start to experience this hyper deflationary environment the technology is ushering in. Um, I tweeted this out the other day too. Like, actually, if you just change your denominator to Bitcoin, then you can experience some of that now. Like everything is getting cheaper in Bitcoin terms. Um, mm -hmm. But the, 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 yeah, to your point, there's this failing model um, of that we call the nation state or the state, whatever. It actually, and I would agree with you that it, it got eclipsed by big tech probably in the late 90s, right? Those organizations started to become more powerful than most nations. And now today it's just US, China, and then the FANG stocks effectively yeah. in terms of economic uh, power. That trend, I think, is just going to continue. Um, but those. So, at what point do the FANGs get more, have a bigger GDP than China and, and, and USA? Yeah, again, the way I see it off. is just the more government tries to overreach with taxation and inflation, the more they're creating incentives for people to move into Bitcoin, right? Money that can't be inflated and is difficult to tax, at least gives a citizen a lot of options on how to move their money. Um, and that's just going to further, it, it enters this self-reinforcing loop of further declining state revenue. All the while, tech is going to, there's no sign of tech abating. It should continue to grow with internet penetration and all these other things. Um, so yeah, we're moving from a, a world organized by one, you know, a monopoly on violence, let's say, to monopolies on data, which are becoming yeah. the new dominant institution. Um, but that's 
yeah, potentially scary as well because they're very it is. It's, authoritarian. It's a lot of them. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting that you say this world, this world uh, monopolized by data. I think if you took those four or five companies that I mentioned and if, if, if their market caps doubled from here, then they'd be on a similar GDP to the USA and China. That's not such an extraordinarily impossible situation. No, I mean, they're doubling. It's really not that big an ask. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, they doubled, what have they tripled over the last year? They must have doubled over the last year. I don't, I don't even know. I don't follow them, but. Um, Surely they've doubled from their March lows, at least. Probably a lot more than that, especially Tesla. Tesla's outperformed Bitcoin the past 12 months. Yeah. Well, that's, won't last. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bubble. The, um, one of the, we're, we're talking about the end of the nation state. And we tend to tell me if I cover this in the last one, then stop me. But we tend to think of countries like Italy and Germany as, you know, because we've grown up with them. But actually, Italy, I think I did talk about this. Italy's only about 200 years old. Germany's only about 200 years old. The States is only about 250 years old as nations. They're young nations. Mm. And they're built around. They sort of rose in the Industrial Revolution after the after the revolutions, you know, the American Civil War, the French Revolution, and so on. That these new nation states emerged. I suppose you'd say um, in the eight, late eighteenth, early nineteenth century. And in the case of Italy, it wasn't until the eighteen eighties. And they're designed like one of the big themes of this book, Daylight Robbery, is that tax is power. Tax is control. And if a ruler, uh, whether it's a king or a government or an emperor, loses control of their tax revenue, then they lose their power. So everything is about keeping that tax revenue and keeping that power. And all of our tax systems are designed around physical economies where goods and workers are visible. The worker goes to the same place and he works there. The goods come into the country and they move from A to B or they're produced in the factory and they're sold in the shop, you know, and and it's all visible and all controllable and all monitorable. And that is how the nation states ruling systems are designed. And remember, with the social democracies of today, they've got such big obligations. If they lose their tax revenue, they are screwed. Now, suddenly, since the 1990s, this new digital economy has emerged. And you'd look at the companies like, you know, Facebook and Google and Apple and Amazon and so on. As far as government uh, tax systems are concerned, they've totally taken the piss. (laughs) They've paid pretty much as much tax as they want to pay. Oh, even Starbucks has done it. You know, their Mm -hmm. IPs here, the trademarks are there, Mm -hmm. the profits are somewhere else. And it's all possible in this globalized digital economy. And, you know, compromises get made. Trump had his thing, his reinstatement thing. And so some people move assets back to America. Some people have stayed in Ireland because the tax, you know, but, the this this we talked about data. Data didn't even exist as something of value until now. How do you tax data? Um, you know that the EU are trying to tax it. They're trying to do these digital taxes, but they can't get to the bottom of it. The tax systems are unable to adapt 
to the realities of the new digital right. economy. And unless we change the way we tax people, we're going to have this two-tier <laughs> economy in the future where you're going to have sovereign individuals and and already you've got sovereign companies, the, the major international tech corporations, and, and tech is making it possible for individuals to have that same status. And then you're going to have those trapped in physical economies at home who are going to have to pay for right. everything. Yeah. And so you're going to have this, this, and it's, but ultimately the nation state, unless it changes the way it taxes people and that, and no government's talking about it. They're all just tweaking here, putting it up a little bit there, taking it down a little bit there. Nobody's saying, right, we're not going to tax income anymore. We're going to tax land or, you know, right. something similarly transformative but that is what you need to do because you design a society by the way that you tax it all the incentives in that society you create by the tax system and that's why you know governments use taxes to to um like behavior in economics to force people to do a certain thing you tax right. al alcohol and cigarettes a lot people don't drink and smoke you tax fuel a lot and incentivize green energy or whatever it is you use the tax system to control how people behave and that we can talk about central bank digital currencies and how they're going to try and do that in a minute but so you know and when we talk about you know our bitcoin citadels of the future we really need to to think about how we tax people in those citizens, whether we tax them at all or what we tax. And, you know, Bitcoin fees are mm. tax, gas fees in Ethereum, they're a form of tax. Yeah. Um, you know, so we need to think about all of those because that is how you determine the destiny of a nation, how successful it will be, how prosperous its people will be, or how poor, how free they'll be, or how subordinated. And it's literally like the most important subject. It is the fundamental design of a society. One, that the money is sound. And two, how you tax people. And they, they are the two building blocks of everything. And it's just so important. But unless nation states fundamentally change the way they tax people, and that might mean that they can no longer provide the services that they currently provide, they might have to swallow that, or as I think is going to happen, is going to be that tech is going to provide those services to a high, higher standard than the government provides them anyway. Yeah. So at that point, people are going to go, what's the point in these government services? So for example, you know, the internet is a far greater educational tool than yeah. a school or a university. Yeah. And, you know, you look at something like Uber, already Uber in London, two of you in, a, in an Uber over a short distance is cheaper than getting the tube. So, you know, Uber and driverless cars and all that's going to replace public transport. You look at, you know, Silicon Valley's trying to, as it puts it, solve the health question. And one of the ways it's doing that is through the use of tech and data and early warning signals and all the rest of it, and putting the burden on the individual to look after himself and make sure he's in good shape. And, you know, if you look at you get your DNA tested, you can find out if you're the sort of person that might get Parkinson's or whatever disease it is. And then you can start dealing with it before you actually get the disease and all this. So text, you know, is starting to deal with the medical problem as well. And, um, and by the way, there was a, a really interesting business I heard pitching. Are you familiar with WeWork, the company WeWork? I am. Yeah. Wait. Okay. So they're doing, they're trying to do WeWork for schools. Hmm. So wherever you are in the world, if you're you're Mr. Digital Nomad and you're in Cartagena, you can go send your kids to the the WeWork in Cartagena, 
Oh. And then if you happen to be, oh no, we're going to Chiang Mai now, well, you're just moving to the WeWork in Chiang Mai. Do you know what I mean? So tech solving education, even the issue of actual schools themselves. So tech, these, it's amazing, it's wonderful, but it's also listening to you and spying on you and, and how's it using your data. I think tech replaces government. Mm. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And this this divide in the world between, I guess, digital and physical reality, again, it seems like the more of the tax base that migrates into the digital domain, the more governments, just to keep revenues constant, they have to more heavily tax the physical domain. And the more heavily you tax happen. the physical domain, the more you diminish the incentives to operate productive businesses and the more incentives you create to push people into the digital domain. So it seems like no yeah. matter what, which way they go, they're just going to get devoured. And every single revolution, every rising up, every revolt in history has been a revolt against some kind of injustice perpetrated by the tax system. Right. You know, it's most famously no taxation without representation. Mm -hmm. But there was like the cry of Pugad Lao in, in the Philippine Revolution, exhorting Filipino citizens to tear up their tax certificates. But, you know, the, the Barons Wars and every every revolt in history has been some kind of injustice perpetrated by the taxist. And when you get into that two tier economy that you just described, where there's one lot who are paying no taxes mm -hmm. and there's another lot who are being burdened with taxes and they see this other lot who are getting scot-free. Do you think they're going to take that line down? Or no. do you think there's going to be anger and revolt and all those other things? And if you yeah. think, you know, there's been discontent in the air since, well, <laughs> I mean, 2016 was the year that everyone says it started, but it didn't go all the way back to the financial crisis. In fact, it probably goes all the way back to 1971, but you know, the, the, it's going to get worse while you have this two tier system. Right. Yeah, it's uh, in the book, The Sovereign Individual, they talk about this, the neo-Luddites, where you're going to have the, what do they call the cognitive elite, I guess, moving into the digital domain, but the neo-Luddites getting really pissed off that everything's getting more expensive, wages are flat, there's this new class of rich, smart people. Um, and it, yeah, I don't, it's, it's, it's concerning as a Bitcoiner too. That's why I think you have to if Bitcoin does play out in the way that we anticipate it, it's not just going to be like, oh, great, your life is amazing now. There is some real risk involved with that, uh, specifically if you're if you're a public or outspoken Bitcoiner. So it's yeah, if I you're a known about. Bitcoiner. Yeah. I remember I was on a flight to Singapore uh, in, I'm going to say 2016, maybe it was 2017. I think it was 2016. It was in that runaway bull market that we had back then. Oh, 2017. And yeah. 2017. And I'm sat on the flight and I get up to go to the loo and I walk back to my seat and I see that in the row in front of me is John McAfee. And I'm like, ah, oh, uh, I, I like John McAfee and he's a, uh, he makes me laugh. He's a bit of a character, a bit of a scoundrel, <laughs> massive scoundrel. I'll tell you a story about that in a sec. But the, um, but I, I, and I've written my book, Bitcoin: The Future of Money. So I'm, I'm, I'm uh, pushing my book. There's the poster back there, mm -hmm. and you know, because it was never released in the states, it hasn't got the acclaim that it deserves. And and I, I, I think everyone's talking about Safe Dean's book, and I'm like, hey, hey what are you? I'm just talking about my book. <laughs> so I'm thinking of all this anyway. I'm pushing my book, whatever. And and I see him there, and so I I walk up to go to him. Hey, John, 
Um, and I was with the plan to talk to him because we're fellow Bitcoins, blah, blah, blah. And this huge, when we're 20,000 feet in the air, you know, somewhere over, I don't know, Iran or something flying to Singapore. And this huge arm just comes out across the aisle of the plane and, and you know, forces me back a couple of steps. Got all these huge forearms of tattoo. And, it, and his bodyguard is sat next to him on the other side of the aisle, protecting him. And the bodyguards, even conscious that McAfee might have problems at 20,000 feet in the air, you know, flying over the world in first class, you know, they still can't be too safe. And so, and as it turned out, I said, oh, I wrote this book and blah, blah, blah. And we all got on absolutely fine. But the more that Bitcoin goes up and the more that certain people are well known in the space for having a lot of Bitcoins, the more they are going to need their own protection. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you know, kidnapping, extortion, all these little things yeah. can go on. All the while, if government revenues are declining, you would expect police forces and other yeah. security they provide to decline. So it's it's send us a couple of Bitcoin, sir, and we'll let you go. What's that? I said send us a couple of Bitcoin, sir, and we'll let you go. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, the, the argument being we're we're mitigating extortion at scale by reducing this non-consensual taxation and inflation, but you're also creating the possibility of more localized extortion. So it's, yeah. a, it's, it's an interesting trade-off. And here's the thing, um, HMRC, which is the English equivalent of the IRS, are making noises about making people declare their crypto holdings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most people's instinct is to not declare the full amount. Mm -hmm. Well, if they de don't declare the full amount and then they get in trouble, there's a kidnapping or an extortion or whatever, well, why should the uh, police protect you? Because you said you didn't have this amount of Bitcoins and you, now you're saying you do. Mm -hmm. So what's the, you know, do you see what I mean? So that's quite an interesting potential situation that some people mm -hmm. find themselves in. Yeah, it really, it just changes so many aspects of human affairs. It's hard to imagine almost mm. um but so you, you you've made this point that taxation it shapes civilization frankly how do we structure the tax system the civilization sort of um develops around that how do you see central bank digital currencies changing this dynamic well there's there's two sides to this on the one hand, in, in England, we call it the slip road. In America, you call it the on-ramp. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the road that feeds onto the highway or, or the motorway, as we call it. <clears throat> in the one hand, central bank digital currencies, people having their own wallet, using wallets, it's an on-ramp. It's Matonis, it's John Matonis, who's a buddy of mine, has come out with this quote. It's the on-ramp into the, the Bitcoin highway. And it will normalize the use of wallets and crypto money and so on. But on the other hand, like it is programmable money. And so it's going to give rise to distortionate power held by behavioral economists and state planners. Because the possibility is to program all sorts of things into that money in order to shape behavior. And so, uh, there's all sorts of things you could program into that money. So, for example, the, the first thing is, is that, like at the moment, technically, the government is not supposed to have access to 
to your bank account. It's supposed to be private. Rules might be slightly different in America, but you know, if HMRC says you owe them this much tax, you still have to pay them the tax. You can say I'm not going to pay you the tax, and you'll go to prison. But they can't go and I think oh, I think they have they can seize your assets eventually. But with programmable money, it's going to be possible. And they're trying to go into what they call real time tax reporting. So rather than you earn the money, calculate the money paid, and then pay the tax owed, they want it. They're going to make it make to want it go like. Um, pairs you earn, where the money you earn is deducted at source, and then you reclaim money back. So the government gets its money easier. So the, the first problem is that they, governments are going to have access to your wallet and possibly other corporations as well. The second is that things can be programmed into that money. So for example, um, it could have an expiry date. You have to spend this money by a certain date. Now, I think I find that a terrifying thought. Mm. <laughs> you know, what about the saver? Well, no, this is a national emergency. We've got a global pandemic. We really need spending to go up. So we've put an expiry date of, of, of next week on your money. Oh, yeah, but I'm, I'm saving it because I want to buy myself a house in my retirement. No, 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 the expiry date's next week. Do, do you see what I mean? So, <laughs> and they can do that. We program yeah. all more money. They can do that. And then the next thing they do is, at the moment, the loan rates you get are usually determined by how creditworthy you are. And... So, for example, oh, this guy's good. He pays his debts on time. He's got assets here, there, the other. We're going to give him a good deal. This guy's a scoundrel. He's he's got a criminal record. We're going to give him a shitty. We're going to. I've got to be compensated for the risk I'm taking on with a higher rate of interest. That's sort of fair enough, vaguely. In practice, it's a bit more money than that, but in principle, it's sort of vaguely fair enough. And, but now, the deals you get can be determined. For example by your social credit score. Mm-hmm. And you know how China's doing its little social credit systems where it ranks individuals on their behavior. And if they say the right things and do the right things, then they get high social credit scores. Well, you've got a really good social credit score, Robert. You say all the right things about the government. So we're going to pay you 3% interest on your money. Whereas uh, your uh, mate, um, you know, who's your mate? Dan Held, your mate Dan Held, saying all sorts of terrible things about the government. And uh, we can't have that. So if he wants to save money, you're going to give him a negative interest rate. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So you're, mm. you're the, the, and, and there's all sorts of things people can do <laughs> with programmable money. And, you know, the beauty of cash is that cash empowers it's the individuals who use it mm-hmm. because. You know, I give my money A to B and it's only me and you involved in that transaction and no one else. There's no middlemen. There's no uh, credit processor. There's no bank. There's nobody taking their little commission. There's nobody checking this, that and the other. It's a direct transaction from A to B. And so cash empowers its users. It gives them total freedom. Freedom is a form of power. I've got a £10 note in my pocket. I can spend it on a newspaper. I can spend it on booze and fags. And by the way, fags is cigarettes in, in English. I can spend it on booze and fags. I can spend it on um, uh, weed on the local sleazy street corner. I can put it in a piggy bank and start saving up for a house. I can do whatever I like with cash. Yeah. When you get money in a bank, you're slightly less empowered as to what you can do with it. You offset what you can do with the convenience of the bank. You know, you can save it. You know, it's safe. You won't, if you get hacked, they'll give you your money back, all these things, but you lose a certain amount of freedom. You know, if you want to send your money from the bank to a Bitcoin exchange, for example, they might get a bit funny about it. So you lose a freedom, but you gain a convenience. But, and, and central bank digital currencies 
are like, I'm not, it's not entirely clear how convenient they'll be. It's not entirely clear what fraudsters are going to get up to. Um, but they are several notches of freedom down from cash. Yeah. And remember Bitcoin, or at least it was initially designed to be cash for the internet. Yep. That was yep. the original thing. As Roger Veer is forever well, <laughs> reminding this, us. I love this, uh, the definition of cash, the original definition comes from the word casse, French word casse, which meant final settlement, basically. It meant physical oh. cash, like gold or silver. It meant a bearer asset. Yeah. So this whole Roger Veer thing is like, it's premised on a misdiagnosis of the definition of cash. He thought it was okay, paper know that. that I can buy coffee with, which is interesting. But I love that point you made because in that framework, Bitcoin combines the ultimate freedom of cash with the convenience of a digital bank account. Yeah. And the protections from predation, like well, they can't inflate it basically, which is a really big deal. Where, which is not something you you didn't even have that with physical cash historically, right? You put cash under your mattress, but you can still be victimized by the currency issuer. Yeah, the, the house can burn down. Well, the house can burn down, or they can pass a six trillion dollar stimulus package. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, um. So that's uh. But so that's. So that you know, there's two sides to those central bank digital currencies. Is but I've, um, I, but as Matona says, they could be an on ramp to Bitcoin and crypto. Yeah, the very dystopian. You know, I don't think I would ever. I assume they'll try to just phase out physical cash in this transition. They'll say you need to redeem your your physical U.S. dollars for Fed coins or whatever. Uh, this was on the cover of the Economist recently. Actually, I, I haven't read it yet, but it, I, I don't read the Economist anymore. But I saw it published mm -hmm. online. Yeah, and I it think it's this week's this week's edition. Is yeah, the this CBDC. week's edition. Um, this is May 2021, first week of May 2021. And I think it just says GovCoin, right? And shows yeah. a big, it's just a Bitcoin emblem, but with a G. <laughs> so they're yeah. trying. Do you know what really annoyed me is um, when they made the announcement about the British um, uh, coin, Rishi Sunak, who's our chancellor, started calling it Britcoin. And he thought, mm. oh, isn't that, isn't that funny? Aren't I being clever? But the FCA, which is our financial conduct authority, banned crypto derivatives. So on the one hand, they're, they're telling people, any buy crypto derivatives, they just made it impossible. It, it's just made it so complicated for crypto investors in the UK. So on the one hand, you're banning it. And they said, oh, there's too much speculation. It's too dangerous. And then on the other hand, you're trying to make out, look at us, Bitcoin, aren't we cool and groovy? And I'm like, you can't have your cake and eat it. It reminds me of your earlier point where Alexander was trying to kind of ride the coattails of Hercules. You know, he puts Hercules yeah. on the coin, but it sort of looks <laughs> like him. And now they're trying it's to exactly the same. push, you know, Britcoin, but also not make it Bitcoin or it's but we propaganda. Were, quick. we're quick. back to propaganda, right? They're propagandizing sure the money. But Twitter was quick to remind him that Bitcoin is a shit coin. <laughs> <laughs> you got to love the free market for ideas. Yeah. Um, okay. So maybe tell me if this is too steep of a gear shift here, but we, we have bubbles on the outline. You talk about the importance of bubbles. Bubbles yeah. historically, you know, the, the common... Uh, refrain against Bitcoin is that it's digital tulips or whatever, which is just sort of nonsense. But um, 
maybe we could talk about how bubbles form, what they are, how they pop. Um, and I guess how you see them emerging and, and existing in, in the, the digital age. Yeah. The, every time I've been on a TV show or on a debate or anything arguing about Bitcoin, the most common criticism, as you say, is that it's a bubble. It's digital tulips. Now, it all depends on what your definition of a bubble is. Now, my definition of a bubble <laughs> is a bubble is a bull market in which you don't have a position. That's a good so one. <laughs> it's exactly what it is. It's because everyone dismisses something as a bubble because they don't own it. And to sort of compensate, to, to make up for the fact that they are not exposed to this bull market, they just declare it a bubble and that makes it okay that they haven't got involved. And how many people do you know who haven't got involved in Bitcoin because they just didn't bother taking the time to learn the tech? Loads. I was too slow to do it. Yeah. Uh, and even now, I, I still... Phil, you know, when somebody tells me about some new coin and, and I, I look at it and I'm like, oh God, I've got to learn a whole nother bloody technology. And, and half the time it's just the, the fag of having to learn it that puts me off looking at it. Um, and maybe that's not such a bad thing if you're a maximalist, but anyway. <laughs> so, but, so a bubble is an easy way of dismissing something that you have uh, it's an easy way of dismissing your own failure, if you like. But we need bubbles. There have been loads of bubbles in history and people have got burnt in them. But we need bubbles because bubbles accelerate investment. Now, the tulip bubble in Holland happened in 1637. And I think if you read it up on Wikipedia, it lasted like a year or two. 1637. So you know, nearly 400 years ago. Where has the global center of the flower industry been for 400 years? Holland. Hmm. You know, that bubble created an industry that has looked after Holland for 400 years. Wow. And it's still the center of that industry today. And it probably wouldn't be had that bubble not happened. So was that bubble actually such a bad thing in the long term for the Dutch? No, it was a good thing. And then you look at the South Sea bubble. Well, the South Sea bubble basically created the stock market. Mm -hmm. And how much intervention and invention and everything else has the South Sea bubble made possible? And sure, people lost their hat in it and there were scoundrels and all the rest of it. You fast forward to the railway bubbles and we had a railway bubble here in the UK in the sort of 1830s and 40s. And I think yours in America was a bit later. Anyway, but there were railway bubbles in both countries. Mm -hmm. But because of those bubbles and the, and, and the accelerated investment that those uh, bubbles caused, the tracks got laid and trains are still running on the same tracks and the same lines that got laid, you know, 150 or 200 years ago. And so it accelerated the building of the railway infrastructure. And this almost every time you get a new technology, there's almost always an investment frenzy around it, a bubble, you know, without the mm -hmm. dot-com bubble, you know, the internet, the bubbles was right. Railways did change the way we moved. Mm -hmm. And that, and, and 
you know, the internet bubble, the internet did change the world in a phenomenal way. Everything that all those idiotic pronouncements were made in, in the dot-com bubble came true. And there were lots of stupid companies and scams and all the rest of it. But without that bubble, you know, all the cables wouldn't have been laid mm -hmm. and the, the, we wouldn't have understand dot-coms. And so many things happened because of that bubble that have enabled the internet to be what it is today. So we need bubbles mm -hmm. and, and they, they actually help. And then, so you get a new technology, you get a, you always seem to get a, you know, 3d printing. There was a bubble about that. Um, uh, uh, oil, we're going to, there's peak oil, we're going to run out of oil. So suddenly there's a frenzy of uranium investment. And then, and as a result of the peak oil panic, loads of money goes into fracking. And so loads of new energy supplies created. So, you know, bubbles aren't such a bad thing. You know, there's a bubble in commodities because old China, blah, blah, blah. But as a result, loads of new commodities come to supply and then the price goes down again. So they're sort of, in a funny kind of way, they're quite healthy. And You always get a bubble around a new technology. Bitcoin is a new technology <laughs> that is also money. If you were like Marvel comic designer designing the ultimate superhero, like the ultimate bubble asset is Bitcoin. And that's why it's like the most bubbly technology almost ever. And it's, it goes through these bubble hype cycles, like once every three or four years, it goes through them. And I mean, we're, we're sort of normalized to them now and everyone's just going to give it another six months. There's this sort of relaxed attitude that we kind of know where we are, which probably means it'll be different this time. Either, either it'll go on longer or it'll be shorter, one or the other, but it won't happen as everyone expects it to because it never does. But so we need bubbles and Bitcoin is the most bubblicious technology ever because it is new technology and it's money. And every Bitcoin hype cycle, you know, first it was, it was a, there was an altcoin mini bubble in, I think it was, would be 2013 when Bitcoin yeah. went to 1,200. It was all stupid. Yeah. I've got, still got world, somebody gave me loads of world coins. <laughs> I come to world coin. And then 2016, 17 was all ICOs and now it's DeFi and NFTs. Yeah. And, you know, I sold my first NFT the other day, <laughs> ah, um, but well, I just did my my little pictures of the Bank of England and, and somebody bought it. But anyway, so, so, and, you, you know, NFTs, I mean, some of the shit that's going on in NFTs is ridiculous. And they are, a lot of people are just using to launder money, uh, you know, but the, uh, the art market's used to launder money. Mm -hmm. But also they are a way of registering ownership online and and so suddenly the guy who invents that hilarious meme that goes around the world, makes everyone laugh and he gets absolutely nothing from it. Well, suddenly now he might actually be able to earn some money from his creativity and NFTs make a lot of things possible. And so, um, you know, I don't quite know where NFTs end. A lot of people are going to use a lot of, lose a lot of money, but there's no doubt that this tokenization of everything is the future. So, so don't decry bubbles is the message of that rant. Yeah, no, that's a, I've never thought about it that way, that the bubbles are, they're necessary really to economic development. And I guess the typical definition I have in my mind of a bubble is just when price is higher than value. So price being what the market has objectively saying something is worth versus the value is what it's actually worth. Um, and those two, they oscillate, you know, sometimes things are undervalued yeah. or, or overvalued. Um, you could also say it's maybe where narrative is outrunning reality, where like people have this vision of railroads changing the world, but the reality just hasn't caught up with that vision yet, or the same with the internet, right? Um, That's absolutely another, right. Narrative has outrun reality. That's a great line. 
Yeah, and another um, another another way to define a bubble, perhaps, is that everything. The way I think about it is everything. There's a configuration of demand for every asset, and part of that demand is for its utility value. So we'll just use gold for an example. Gold has a ten trillion dollar market cap. Maybe ten or twenty percent of that is for gold's utility value in electronics and dentistry and whatever else gold is used in. The other 80 to 90% of its market cap is reservation demand for gold as money, people holding it as a store of value, right? Um, you could say that when that, ex the sometimes I think a bubble is a sign when there's an exchange value that exceeds the utility value. So you could say that money, and this is a quote I got from Naval, I said, money is the bubble that never pops. So it's all, there's always, because money is the monetary premium on an asset, essentially. And I love the way he's called Bitcoin the most bubblicious technology that's ever existed because Bitcoin is the first asset in history that's pure monetary premium. It has no alternative use case, right? It's like virginal money. It's only mm -hmm. good, it's only usable as money. Whereas even something like gold has this industrial utility use that's separate as Yeah, money. minimal, minimal, minimal. minimal. But, yeah, but, I'll take your point. But Bitcoin... That's why it's so bubblicious, frankly, is because it's pure monetary premium. And we're yeah. constant, we're, we're, the market's trying to zero in on what it's worth. And it's somewhere between zero and global reserve asset. <laughs> so, of course, it's volatile. I think we underestimate the role of narrative in bull and bear markets. Mm -hmm. um, the human brain responds to stories mm -hmm. more, more perhaps than, than actual data. Like if I told you a story, like whenever we, I write a book, I'm always told by the publisher, tell a story, tell a story, and then tell us the facts afterwards. Because once you tell us a story, you've persuaded us. Whereas mm -hmm. if you just tell the facts, you know, it might be to a rational person, the facts might be whatever, but the story is more compelling. Mm -hmm. And we underestimate the role that narrative plays in driving a bull market up. Every bull market needs a story. And then the bear market is like the destruction of the story when you no longer believe the story anymore. And hmm. once you go through a bear market, it's very hard to believe again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, and, and, and it's funny how, I think Warren Buffett said it, it's, it's, it's only when the tide goes out, you find out who's been swimming naked. Yeah. And I used to see it with, uh, when I was in, the, in mining stocks back in the day, and you, mining is the most cyclical um, area. And it goes through boom and bust. And, you know, it, mining exploration stocks literally have nothing. All they have is a bit of capital and a couple of guys with a beard and a drill who are going to go and drill some rocks in Utah or somewhere ridiculous and, and, and find, uh, see if there's any metal in those rocks. And, you know, nine times out of 10, probably 99 times in a hundred, there's not enough metal to be realistically mineable. And so the capital gets lost, but one time in a hundred, they do find something that's worthwhile mining and, and you can make many times your, your money. And when in a mining boom, what happens is these mining stocks, everyone's throwing money at everything. They're paying no due diligence whatsoever. And these two guys with a beard and a drill are suddenly getting first class flights and staying at the Savoy hotel and all the rest of it. Uh, while they're while the value of their company goes up, but 
And then the bear market comes and they can't get any funding. And suddenly you discover that most of these things were just total bullshit. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, they call, they call mining the drill bit. They call it the truth machine. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you drill, you know the truth. So a lot mm-hmm. of the time they try and put off drilling <laughs> just to keep raising the money and put off drilling. And so, and all this stuff comes out in a bear market and all the fucking bullshit gets exposed and you swear blind that you're never investing in this. And so I'm sure the same thing happens with, with crypto altcoins. You know, this is an amazing altcoin. It's going to do yada yada with NFTs and it's going to mm-hmm. make NFTs much cheaper mm-hmm. than thing and la la la. Yeah. And, and then, and then the bear market comes along and it's like fucking NFTs are just bollocks. Yeah. They're just bollocks. Right. They are total bullshit. Yeah. And the idea that this, who gives a shit what this company does do? Nobody's, there's no value to NFTs anyway. So what's the point of this coin? So yeah. the narrative just gets turned on its head. That's right. And I guess we just have to be ready for that. hundred percent. That's a great way to look at it. And I would say that the going through the bear market is what will make if you're not a Bitcoin maximalist, or you're not if you're not 80% plus Bitcoin, going through a bear market will put you there. Oh, it actually re, it hardened my understanding of Bitcoin going through a bear market. Like actually, the narrative that I had been figuring out, like what is this technology, what is money, what is gold, etc. Um, that the Bitcoin tattoo that I have, I got in November 2018, which is the bottom of a bear market. Like I had been studying it deeply, um, and yeah, so that that to me, that once you get to that level of bullishness, that you're still bullish at the bottom of a bear market, like you've you've done the homework to understand the value of an asset very deeply. Um, clearly, I could be wrong. It could be you know shitcoin, not Bitcoin. Who knows? But everything that I've learned my entire life, <laughs> every investment decision I've ever made, and I've I've had mixed success, but you know good good bets and bad bets. I still think Bitcoin today is the best risk-adjusted bet in the world by far. Even at, like not even, close. even at 55,000 bucks. Even at $55,000. It's a $250 trillion addressable market, global store value. So Bitcoin's a trillion dollars. I think it's got at least 250X upside left. When did you buy, did you, were you given your first Bitcoins or did you buy your first Bitcoins? No, I bought, I bought in 14, but I didn't start buying heavily until 16. Okay. Yeah. And were you just buying like, when you say you were just buying like sort of pocket money amounts or, or like uh, not significant sums? Uh, 2014 was this, yeah, you could say large pocket money, but then 2016 okay. was like large sums of my net worth. Betting the house sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, it grew over time, right? It grew with my yeah. conviction in the asset class. Initially, I was drawn in actually by a shitcoin, by Ethereum. Uh, when I when I read Nick Zabo's work on smart contracts, that's when I started making investments into the space. And initially, it was just market cap weighted. I was like, oh, I'll buy you know, 50% Bitcoin, 25% Ethereum, 10% Litecoin, whatever it was. Um, and then studying Bitcoin throughout the bull and bear markets, I just became more sharpened onto Bitcoin. I had an opportunity to do that first Ethereum ICO and I looked at it and I couldn't make it. I couldn't make head or tail of it. So I didn't invest. If I should have just sat down with a day and just fucking done it. And anyway, never forgive myself. Yeah. I think one Bitcoin was worth 2000 Ethereum then. So that would be like $7 million in today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would have put, I would have put, I would have put the equivalent of 10 grand in. 
So I dread to think how much that is. <laughs> well, let's see. That, that was my sort of set been... amount for I, when I wasn't sure I would stick 10 grand in. I don't even want to think what the number is because I would yeah. have sold it anyway. Robert. It's, a, it's a staggering number. I mean, it's uh, it's hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> I think I think a lot of people have made more money in Ethereum than they have in Bitcoin because a lot what happens is Ethereum tends to move later in the cycle and buy more. And so when Bitcoin moves... Uh, I mean, in fact, we're seeing it now because mm-hmm. Ethereum's having mm-hmm. a great run and Bitcoin's yeah. a little bit stagnant. Um, Bitcoin moves and you miss the Bitcoin run and you're like, right, right, what can I buy now? I'll go one down the food chain and I'll buy Ethereum. Mm-hmm. And then you go further and further down the food chain into the shit coins <laughs> and then then the whole thing goes tits up. Yeah. But the so a lot of people who've made, you know, 1,000x their money, it, it, a lot of the time it's been in Ethereum. Yeah. Rather than Bitcoin. And a lot of people were in that ICO because they already had knowledge of Bitcoin. So like, what the heck? Yeah, exactly. Made a lot of money Yeah, and it was like, it was like your second, it was your second chance. That's right. Yeah. Right. I'm going to tell you as to close this show, Robert, about my theory of the 100 year cycle in money. Okay. And I'm very, um, uh, hesitant when I start talking about cycle theory, because it's easy to look back at history, discern a pattern, and then go, oh, there's a cycle. And then when it it actually happens in real time, reality is very different to the sort of arbitrary cycles that you can impose on history. With that disclaimer aside, let me tell you about my 100-year cycle of money idea. So with the invention of the printing press in, I don't even know, in Europe, Guggenheim's version, which I'm going to guess was in the late 16th century, I want to say, in 15-something. Shortly after the invention of the printing press, we started using in the UK, in the early 1600s, running cash notes. And these were the very first forms of paper money that we used in the UK. I think they were using them on the continent slightly sooner. I'm I'm not 100% sure. Uh, They must have been using them in Renaissance Italy. Um, but anyway, we used these running cash notes, which were basically written notes representing a certain amount of gold stored with a goldsmith. And then in 1696, we got the formation of the Bank of England. And the Bank of England was formed because we had had the what was known as the Glorious Revolution of 1687, where the king, James II, had been overthrown by William of Orange and Mary, William and Mary. And they'd come and we had the English Bill of Rights, which was a great document for freedom, supposedly. And one of the, and in fact, that, that's where we get the roots of this expression, daylight robbery from, mm. because there was a thing called the half tax. And it, this was every Englishman had to pay taxes on every fireplace or half or stove in his house. And every twice a year, a tax inspector would come to your house <laughs> and count the number of fireplaces you had. And then you would have to pay a tax based on that. What a life having tax inspectors come in your house every two years. And the English hated it. And it was a huge bone of contention when William um, was overthrew James II. And so in order to ingratiate himself with the English people, he got rid of the half tax because uh, it was considered a violation of the Englishman's sacred privacy. And But then he, William of Orange, like a lot of kings in those days, had various wars he was fighting abroad. He had war in France, war in Scotland, war in Ireland, and he needed to fund them. 
And so he came up with two means to fund them. And the first was that he would tax windows instead of um, fireplaces. And so it was much easier for a tax collector to walk past somebody's house, count the number of windows and levy a tax based on that. Impossible tax to avoid. You can't hide windows. Um, and it was sort of progressive because the bigger the house, the more windows, the more you were able to afford. And the infrastructure was already there from the hearth tax. And you didn't need to interact with the taxpayer. So the windows tax came along in 1694 and it was reasonably successful at first. The levels were very low and um, gradually over time they went up. And then people started doing all sorts of things to avoid paying the tax. They built houses without windows. They built houses with much fewer windows. And then the tax started making people ill because landlords um, started building houses with no windows at all. <laughs> and this was in the time when we didn't have gas lighting or electric lights. We only had candles and we burnt rustics. So to lose your daylight altogether was a considerable sacrifice. And then in the Industrial Revolution, they discovered that the many outbreaks of typhoid and cholera and all the diseases was made far worse by these damp, cramped windowless dwellings. But did the government get rid of the tax? No, they made raised it even higher because now there was the Napoleonic War to pay for. And the tax kept going up and up and up. And even though it made people sick and then people started singing songs of protest, they started handing out um, leaflets of protest. Um, they started uh, um, uh, debating it in Parliament. Charles Dickens wrote essays, pamphlets were handed out, everything. And there were scientific studies conducted that proved that the tax made people ill and they mm. still wouldn't get rid of this stupid tax. And when they eventually debated the matter in Parliament, they called it, uh, the MPs cried out, daylight robbery. The mm -hmm. tax was effectively robbing people of their daylight because they were blocking up all their windows. And that's thought to be the origins of that expression, daylight robbery. So go back to 1694 again, and we're going to get to this 100-year cycle of money in a second. The other thing that William did to, in order to raise the money to fund his war was he formed the Bank of England. And the Bank of England was raised a bit like the Fed. I think it was like 12 private backers all put the money into this <laughs> private bank. And it was able, I think they had like one and a half million pounds in gold and they issued 10 million pounds in notes or something like that. Right. It was an almighty scam, but they raised the money they needed to pay for the war. But there was a big, at the time, silver bullion was worth more because of the inflation it was worth more melted down as bullion than it was as a coin with the stamp of the king on it. Mm -hmm. So there was this huge trade going down on where people were melting down silver coins and exporting them to France and selling them as silver bullion. It was an arbitrage trade, basically, mm -hmm. oh. but it was a huge trade that went on. And it was a big problem because the government was running out of all its silver. So he got the cleverest man in the country to come and be the warden of the mint, who was Isaac Newt, the great physicist. And Isaac Newton thought long and hard about it. And eventually what he did is in 1716, he recalled all the gold and silver, reminted it. And this was known as the great recoinage of 1716. And he put England on officially on the gold standard for the very first time. And a gold sovereign, uh, which is about the size of a, in fact, I've got one in my drawer. If I hold on, I can show you a gold sovereign. Would you like to see a gold sovereign? I'd love to. I'll hold it up to the camera here. And a gold sovereign, which is about maybe a quarter of an ounce of gold, something like that. Let me just hold this up to the camera. Um, oh, oh, shit, sorry. 
Hang on, uh, let me straighten this thing out. There's a, you can see a gold sovereign, a quarter of an ounce, roughly mm. a bit less than that, of, of, of 22 karat gold, not quite pure gold. And that became eventually the pound coin. <laughs> it oh. now takes about 250, 300 pound coins to buy the old bound coin. <laughs> but anyway, that was the old, uh, that, that was the, uh, this is actually a Victorian sovereign. And so this was the great recoinage of 1716. And it followed, so it's about 100 years on from the start of people using running cash notes. Okay, and then that sort of, and it, it, Britain wasn't an empire at this point, and it gradually rose, the empire of the sea, the trade, and all the rest of it. But we kept continuously fighting France. And then we got involved, Napoleon decided he wanted to conquer France. And William Pitt was the English prime minister then. And in order to, um, uh, the English hated post-revolutionary France and all these horrible enlightenment ideas of freedom and Rousseau and all these unacceptable uh, ideas above the station that the French people had got into their minds. And it was desperate to stop that revolutionary fervor uh, spreading to England. And also uh, America had had its own little revolution. And so William Pitt started funding, America does this now, it started funding all Napoleon's uh, opponents on the continent with money in order to pay them to fight Napoleon. And um, he started exporting gold coins, all our gold coins to pay for it. And it was known as the Cavalry of St. George because St. George, the patron saint of England, was on the gold coins. And <laughs> lo and behold, he ran out of gold. And so we then had to we then got involved in a war with Napoleon and there was terrible inflation at home and the army couldn't be paid because there wasn't the gold and silver to pay them. So England actually came off the gold standard in order to print the money to pay for the war against Napoleon, which we eventually won. And one of the reasons we were able to win that war is because of all the inflation that had existed in uh, revolutionary France and with the assignat that followed mm -hmm. the French Revolution, they weren't able to print the same amount of money that we were. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so right, we outprinted right. them. <laughs> anyway, the war ends and there's, there's an absolute total mess and we've got to go back on the gold standard. And so we go back on the gold standard, 1816, the second great recoinage. And that's when these gold sovereigns, like the one I'm holding up here, uh, were first um, issued. So we've got the um, early 1600s, 1716, 1816. 100 years, 100 years, 100 years. The next big evolution of money was 1914, the beginning of the First World War. And France and Germany and England all go to what must, what at the time was the worst war in all history, and possibly even including the Second World War was still the worst war in all history. Terrible, terrible war. I think if you include the Spanish flu that had its origins in the trenches, I think over 50 million people, I mean, wow. just what the fuck died wow. in that war? 50 million people. Now, the big saying when we went to war, the big saying was the war will be over by Christmas. Mm -hmm. And it never was. It was supposed to go on for a few months and it went on for four and a half terrible years. In order to print the money to pay for that war, the English and the German and the French governments all took their countries off the gold standard and money became fiat. Mm -hmm. If we had stayed on the gold standard, if sound money had reigned, 
those wars could not have gone on for anything like the extent that they did. And all those people need never have died because there was not the gold to pay for them. Mm-hmm. But they could print as much money as they needed. And so fiat money made that war possible. And it's terrible when you think of the implications of it. But when did that transition from gold to fiat money happen? 1914, a hundred years after the last great recoinage in 1816. So you've got this hundred year cycle in money. And then I know America was sort of on the gold standard, but it wasn't because America confiscated everybody's gold in the 1930s. And then, you know, Bretton Woods, and it was sort of, but, you know, in 19, until 1914, remember, the pound was still the, the most important currency in the world and yeah. Britain was still the most powerful country in the world. And, and, and that war did for Britain. <laughs> and, and, and it was coming off the gold standard that did that war, um, did, made that war possible. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was the money, destroying the money, destroyed Britain. Yeah. And, and the British Empire in the late um, 19th, uh, 19th century, there's a lot to be proud about. You know, there's many, many great British people who lived in that time, great inventors, great artists, great writers, and so on. It was an extraordinary, it was, it was, you know, probably our greatest time in our history, the late 1800s, early 19th century. Anyway, um, 100 years later, 2008, uh, banking crisis, and a little white paper gets published mm-hmm. with a new form of money that solved a problem that's dogged cryptographers for years, the problem of double spending, the Byzantine general's problem. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so here we have 100 years again, cryptographic money, uh, the latest uh, system of money. And, you know, whether it's central bank digital currencies or Bitcoin or Decred or whatever coin you care to mention, whatever it is, mm-hmm some kind of crypto money is now going to be the money of the future. Mm. And, and, and there's a, there's a patent 100 year cycle Mm -hmm. uh, that you can see. And so that uh, is my hundred year uh, theory, uh, hundred year cycle in money theory. That's brilliant. Uh, Very interesting. So all of them involved warfare until, (laughs) until 2010, right? Which, we, we haven't had a, I guess, a, a kinetic warfare, but we have all these other wars, the war on terror, the war on war COVID, on drugs, war on now. COVID. Yeah. Just all these. And, and, yeah. and there's, I think, you know, there's lots of war proxy wars going on mm-hmm. that we don't know about. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's this dishonest society. We're not even honest about war anymore. <clears throat> That's right. Yeah. There's, you don't hear the media suppresses a lot of like i know in myanmar right now there's a lot of military action and uh social revolt going on you don't hear anything about that in the u.s yemen yeah yemen yeah syria yeah iraq libya and wasn't it Right before what, COVID whatever was that announced. people, the, the Chinese are the is it the Uwar? What are the Uwars? What are those people that Chinese are exterminating the Chinese Muslims? The I think it's called the Uwars. I forgot what they're called. I'm not sure, but they have basically concentration camps, right? Yeah, and so, yeah. yeah, and then I, I I read that right before COVID was announced as a global pandemic, there were million man protests going on, and <clears throat> north of I think over ten places in the world. 
a million man plus protest. I might be off on the against numbers. the government reaction to COVID. No, no, this was right before COVID became a thing. There yeah. were protests going on worldwide. Uh, I think okay. well, all about local issues to those countries. Yeah, people revolting against the government. So oh, there's okay. just you know people are like oh COVID was kind of a scapegoat to reinforce government lockdown and oppression and all this. I don't know. You know, I try not to get too deep into the. I don't even well, like something's the term. going on, and and I don't know. If, I mean, it might just be social media inflaming everything. Yeah. But there's, you know, there's, you could smell the discontent. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's all rooted in the money. At the end of the day, right? I, I think so. And, yeah. and money makes war possible. And we can end on this: tax makes war possible. Mm -hmm. If you look at every war in history, right from. And, you know, there's never been a civilization without taxation, as I'm always saying. Every war in history has been made possible by taxation of some kind, whether it's taxation via inflation, that stealth tax, or, you know, direct taxation. And every war, you know, you cannot name a war that wasn't funded by taxation or debt, which is a tax on the future. They're all different right. forms of taxes. And every conquest has been about taking control of the tax base, the land, the labor, the produce, the profits. So there is this link between taxation and war. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, war makes taxes possible. Mm -hmm. Many, many taxes that we have, we would never have, they just wouldn't be able to, politicians would not be able to introduce them in peacetime. They right. need the pretense of an emergency to impose the taxes. And, you know, Abraham Lincoln, in the United States Civil War brought um, income tax to America for the very first time, 1861, 1862. Then it came back again in 1913, but it, it only hit every man in America, 1942, the Revenue Act of 1942, which was to pay for the American war effort. And there was all these, um, you know, they got Donald Duck, they made a Donald Duck video with Donald mm -hmm. Duck playing this the character, this plucky American patriotically playing his taxes. And there was a song sung by Irving Berlin. I paid my income tax today, a thousand bombs to, bur to bomb Berlin. They've got to be paid for. I chipped in. That certainly makes me feel okay. <laughs> what? Dark, man. <laughs> and that, people were singing yeah. that. But, but the, 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 the income tax came to every man in World War II in America, 1942. And then after the crisis had passed, it never went away. It stayed. And so governments need war. And the same happened in the UK everywhere. And then, you know, financial crisis, another crisis, we get quantitative easing. You just quite try introducing quantitative easing. We're going to print mm. money in peacetime. Just wouldn't have happened. They needed the excuse, but they never stopped quantitative easing after the, even after the crisis has gone away. It just became normal. Yeah. And it's just, it's, and, and so war makes tax possible, but tax makes war possible. Right. Yeah, so we need tax resistant and inflation resistant money to subdue warfare. 100%. Bitcoin yeah. is a force for peace. Beautiful. The only awesome. problem is if people go to war to get your bitcoins. But how do, <laughs> but how do they get it's, it? I don't know. Can't confiscate they it. They need your keys. Yeah, if yeah. it's custodied properly, you shouldn't be able to confiscate it. Yeah, but what if, they, if they're torturing you? Do you give them? Do you give me a your seed? Well, maybe you phrase. don't hold it in your head. Hold it in a a way that they can't get it from you with torture. Yeah, multi sig or whatever it may be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting. Interesting to think about. But this has been 
awesome again. You're a brilliant storyteller. Thank um, you. It's been a pleasure, Robert. And I look forward to the next one. Me too.